Welcome to the Prescriptions Podcast, bringing TCM to mental health. Well, welcome to our podcast. We're back. Hello, hello. Hello. So I guess tonight we've decided our topic's going to be addiction. And uh, we've been kind of freestyling a little bit, wondering how we want to approach that topic. Um, Sean, you had mentioned kind of trying to break it down in terms of the organ and the emotion. So maybe that's a good place to start. What were you thinking? Well, my mind just kind of went in multiple ways of feedback. So if someone is dealing with a specific emotion sort of reference, and we'll go over it as we kind of go through the discussion, but thinking back to our very first podcast where we correlated specific uh, emotions to organs that could lead you to propensity to why you have for example let's say if you're dealing with grief or a lot of sorrow people that use some sort of smoke of substance because they're trying to fill up the lungs or deal with um, an absence or a pain or some sort of hurt that's correlating to that area but also on the opposite end how does people who maybe are unaware of their emotions have certain habits that then give them a propensity to fall into that emotional groove a little bit more. And I'd kind of be curious to hear if you feel like what comes first or how does people live within that cycle? Because I think that's so much of what addiction falls under is where am I at? How do I get out of this sort of whirlpool or swirling effect that people find themselves in those positions I've always kind of before I lose my train of thought one thing you said made me think about so the emotion I was thinking about the liver and anger and how the liver takes the biggest beating for most most addictions chemical addictions and um, I don't know why but it made me think about okay so with the anger part, what role does that play in one's propensity to be either a happy drunk or a mean drunk? You know, like if you have crazy liver stagnation, are you a mean drunk if you're an alcoholic? Or do you, or if you have maybe mm, something going on with your heart and you're that kind of person who always acts joyful or, or maybe you do really always feel joyful but we all, we all know that that can cause you harm as well is that a, a happy drunk um i don't know i just whatever you said sparked that thinking and and i, I didn't want to lose that thought the first thing that kind of comes to my mind on that, that is just the degree of deficiency or excess that a person has because mm. we know that extreme yin will turn into yang and extreme yang will turn into yin so whether someone's drinking drinking to bring that heat or that fire to almost like burn themselves out so that anger is kind of smoted or dependent on the day or the time or how much they're handling in life drinking a little bit too much stokes this form of aggression or the need to release that liver stagnant energy and then there has to be a outward or an exterior manifestation of that emotion and that makes perfect sense 
makes perfect sense. I'm sorry, what was your question about you were curious? Like, what comes first? Do you feel like the emotion leads to the to the action or the action has a propensity to have someone fall in line with an emotion along with an addiction? Just how do they play off of one another? So dual diagnosis is something very commonly seen within the addiction world. Um, it's said that as much as like maybe like 60 maybe percent of people who are ad addicts are usually dealing with an undiagnosed PTSD. So it's, it's an underlying emotional issue, something traumatic something overwhelming that they can't deal with or confront with and so they turn to ways of self-medicating with their drug of choice and wh what we're discussing so far I think is we're trying to understand if there is an underlying pattern of the drug of choice so why would someone choose a substance of abuse or um, so a lot of it is genetics. Um, for some people, alcohol is really, you know, they take it for the first time and, and their description of it is like, I didn't know what feeling alive was until I took my first drink. For them, it was like, wow, it feels amazing. For other people, like especially for Asians who lack the enzyme to actually you know, digest alcohol appropriately, for, uh, for, for, some, for a lot of people, like it's, um, for one person I've told me when he, when he first his, took his first drink it was like Chinese New Year dad said, his dad brought him like a hard liquor like a glass of hard white rice wine and told him to take a drink because he had to be a man drink up boy so he took the first drink and his face turned red his heart started beating and it felt terrible and his dad says well you just got to drink through it <laughs> that's what you do <laughs> oh, no. so obviously this guy never became an alcoholic <laughs> because for him the chemical didn't do the same thing as the first guy where he felt like wow I did, didn't realize I was living in the days like I was not living life until I took that alcohol so part of it is genetics and then part of it is also environmental so it has to be the exposure to the stimulant so it has to be accessibility of that form and then our biology would determine what is appropriate, like what we respond to, and how whether or not we that is becomes our our preferred uh, drug of choice. And then we forget that, you know, emotions, all these things that exist within us, it's a response to our culture and environment. Without a culture that creates a certain belief system, without a culture that creates certain stigmas on things, uh, we might not have as so many addicts as we do, you know today. Like in the United States, currently we say that addiction is one of the greatest crises we're having, and by 2020, 100, um, a million people would have died from this you know, war on drug. Um, a hundred, did I say a million? I didn't say a million. You well, said a million. You said a million. million. I did. Yeah. Okay, okay. So China was dealing with the same thing about, you no, know, during the opium war period, mm. and then after the Maoist takeover in the 1950s, you know, they had on their hand a much bigger problem, an addiction that numbered, you know, possibly in like 25 million people who are literally addicted to opium. Mm -hmm. And they got rid of, of that epidemic within seven years. You know how they did it? They didn't stigmatize mm -hmm. the use of, of opium. They, they didn't make the, the victims or the addicts felt that it was their fault. They said that you were a victim of this. They saw it as a medical issue. Well, in America, since, our, since the beginning of our history, when we were fighting drugs, we saw it as an ethical issue. You were immoral to be a user. And, and because of that strategy, today we're still dealing with the drug crisis and we're failing 
you know, we're not, we're not making any inroad. Well, when we view addiction as a medical issue, you know, we can be very successful. <laughs> China has shown it's had dealt with a much bigger issue, much larger population size, and they kind of fixed it within seven years. Wow. That's amazing. I think this reminds me of a video I just saw recently. It was for a class. It was psychology of patient care, and there was a gentleman named Gabor Mate. I'm not sure if any of you have heard of him, but he uh, talks a lot about addiction and why are we in when Huang was speaking, it was really just about the suffering and the lack of connection. That addiction is a form of, or those that are addicted feel some sort of sense of isolation. And right now in my brain, I'm tying that entirely towards how we view the heart and the Shen, where this acknowledgement that you've spoken before about DD, that in our culture or society, we have ostracized people with any sort of addictive quality and and have even created divisions within addiction to categorize or prioritize you know what's potentially acceptable like someone can have a uh, eating disorder or um, use substances that are legal versus when we talk about uh, heavy drugs or other certain substances that are against the law to use, we're not only penalizing the people that need the help the most, but then we're putting them in places and not giving them the circumstances to create that acknowledgement and that connection again, to turn that shen back on, to illuminate the heart and to, to get all the other emotions and organs back into play. And the other part of the video, and to your point, Huang, was like in Portugal when they decriminalized all of their um, substances, things rapidly changed yeah. and they realized that all of a sudden there's this new approach that clearly here in the United States we're not really following. And I think that plays a lot to how we need to approach patients and just creating the community and the connection through the consultations and the experiences that we're going to have with people. Just seems such a huge task, and that falls right in line with all the things that are dividing us as a country right now. Um, you name it, we're divided on it, and it seems like such a long road to turn that around so that people do see it as an illness or as a medical issue. And I, it's reminding me of um, just was reading an article on homelessness in downtown or just in LA in general. And I think it uh, was up 19%, but it's also up 19% in Sacramento and pretty much across the state. And they can't seem to find uh, a consensus on the number of, p the percentage of people on the street who have uh, addiction versus mental illness and they're talking about really they're a smaller number than everyone knows so you have a lot of people who are just like normal folks who've fallen on hard times they don't have addictions whatever and they're forced to live in an environment with people with addictions 
and out of desperation eventually they become addicted to things as well um so yeah i'm not sure how how we combat that and how we how we as acupuncturists even step into the realm i guess it all comes down to just being political um but we you know we like to think there's a way to do things and attract things <laughs> so that you don't have to get caught in the bureaucracy but unfortunately i don't i think you know we're going to have to step into that arena at some point in time why so quiet jess i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i think the best way to ch make change is to talk about it you know we don't talk about i mean we're starting to talk about it more mental health and addiction um it really bothers me when uh famous people artists they um they glorify the drug use like make songs about it and it's it's really not cool to make the kids think that it's cool to be like addicted to drugs in my opinion but it really is nature and nurture you can have a trauma and want to um fill that hole or uh self-medicate or you could just be with like the wrong crowd of people and they seem like they're having fun and you want to try it and then you don't really understand what it's going to do to your body or your mind and and our brains finished developing at age 25 and a lot of children are doing it and don't understand like what it's really doing to your brain. Um, yeah, I worry a lot about the kids who are all on the vaping, the nicotine vaping, and I'm really happy to see a lot of commercials that are showing kind of, you know, the preteen snapping off at the, at the parents to get out of my room and having a headache in the classroom. And I hope that people are paying attention to that and paying attention to their teenagers and preteens because I mean, kids in kindergarten are vaping. And I just can't imagine what's going to happen to their poor little brains. That's awful. And I think a lot of that comes with how we digest our experience. So we're talking about the spleen energy here and how we absorbing things and integrating them into our lives, into our experience. And that'll then come into how we cement our will or our juror with the kidneys. So to Jessica's point where you don't have the foresight to understand what sort of taxation that any sort of addiction or overuse or overstrain or overwork, anything that's in excess will do while you're still developing that exact energy and then you see down the line how it plays out with people's longevity with certain um, growth or developmental or uh, issues further or they age faster so all their their essence you know people who a lot of people who have been through addiction for many of years have chronic diseases and ailments or um, you know their skin, their hair, their overall um, vitality and lust for life becomes dampened. And so I think the other thing is, to your point, Didi, how can we as practitioners step in is to create some sort of education. And I think that's the beautiful thing about what we're doing in Chinese medicine as a whole is just to understand that prevention doesn't need to start once something sprouted. And if we can 
have talks like this, get the word out there, and then through every experience we, we have with our own communities and with our patients, have people own their health a lot more and take a responsibility because addiction, if left, you know, to eat away at someone can really degrade the potentiality of everything that person has. It reminds me of uh, what you were, what you sent us last week, Hong, about helping um, your patients to be their own creators. That uh, really reverberated with me a lot, and I thought, yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. It's like I, I, you can, I, you can heal through me but I'm not healing you. Mm-hmm. You have to create the situation. You have to be the creator of what you want to become. And it seems to me that that, um, yeah, that is a, r- a really great way that we could help people with addictions is to just empower them to be the best person that they can be by moving things that are stuck and giving them herbs that nourish different things or uh, maybe tone a few things down to help them and you know between needles and herbs and just compassion um, which so many people just I think a lot of people thrive with just a little bit of compassion Mm -hmm. Um, it seems a really good avenue to to be able and I I like what you said Sean about you know just through the community like if you don't want to become politically active then you can at least make sure that the place that you work has these services available or that people understand how to help people with addiction so you can tell your uh, your patient who says oh well you know i'm dealing with my son and he's a meth addict well why don't you bring your son in and let's needle him too because i i actually am sitting here and thinking yeah, I have been so focused on treating some people sometimes that I haven't really paid attention to the fact that they told me they have a member of their family who's an addict and I didn't try to, for lack of a better word, upsell TCM at that point and say, so where's where's your son? Where's your daughter? Why aren't they in here? You understand the benefits of it. And that tells me that people who have been getting treatments for a long time still even don't understand how much this medicine can touch and do mm-hmm. so um, yeah we do have to educate yeah so i was just at a um an addiction symposium yesterday and a lot of um integrative physici- uh, practitioners were there they were both from the west you know, the md people and then also from tcm uh so what the mds were saying is that tcm is like physical si- no c- compassion when we approach the patient we treat them with sympathy and understanding and with our herbs and our and our needles we can give them you know that that tender loving care that they need and a lot of other modalities that work within uh, like for a rehab center for example the patient comes in they're so jittery they can't even sit down for basic meditation you know the the cognitive behavior therapist trying to give them they can't but one needle like a yin tang needle which is right between your two eyes between your eyebrows that calms them down right away and then they find themselves being able to sit down for a little bit you know so our medicine is amazing and use and can be used but it, it has to be within the context of community because addiction is as Sean was saying a lack of connection at the end of it it's it's about connection so wh- when we talk about Portugal or China with their history of dealing with addiction as national epidemics 
they had the right policies, but at the end of the day, the workhorse was the community. It was the Chinese, when, when they did it, they had to mandate re-education meetings, which means you come there for on, on, a regular, on a regular meetings. You talk about your problem, why you're having it, they tell you about, the, you know, about what you can do, what's positive, what you're doing well. So it's all about getting that human-to-human -human connection, having the community support, and not telling the, the addicts that they, are, that, that they are bad people, but telling them that they can, now this is something you're experiencing, but you can get over it. You know? So all that is necessary. Um, so addiction is a lack of connection to the community, to the people around us. And it affects uh, all systems from, you know, obviously the closest system is your family. So when you have an addict in your family, it creates a very, no, a, a very um, traumatizing uh, environment. Everybody is concerned about the addict. So when they, they go anywhere, they talk about anything, they, you know, even if they go to a therapist and the therapist says, tell me about you, the person would then talk about the addict in the house. So everything is about the, the addict. And that has been shown to be not a very effective way of dealing with addiction. The addiction should be seen for what it is as a medical condition and depersonalized from the, from the person. And the whole family system should be treated. You know, like these are the things that are happening. How should you, you know, uh, develop the re re resilience to deal with it, what are the skills, and when we don't make it that person's fault, the addict's fault, then that's when the real change begins to happen. Right. Yeah. In thinking about that as a team and support for level of care, you never know who you're going to get any one of the five energetic elements you know you have that person or that friend that may bring you a lot of the joy or you have the person that you can really open up to and cry on their shoulder with or someone that's going to be your rock and stand there and give you that like gusto to take on life and help out your kidney or someone that's going to challenge you with just amount enough amount of force almost to irritate you or to use that liver energy properly so it's not just uh, one person, but searching out and seeking where to find those energetics aspects in your life. And, and even though you mentioned connection, and, and I want to clarify too, one of the things I was going through my head was just like sexual addiction. You know, there, there can even be touch in a form of uh, closeness without connection. And to your point about how we are as a, and as a country and just as humanity with modernization and technology even this experience in itself where we've all shared great joy in doing it like having a conversation because sometimes body language isn't enough or proximity isn't enough but the verbalization and the acknowledgement of someone saying I hear you uh, I know what's going on uh, let's get through this together makes a big difference. It makes me think a lot about lately I've been more and more thinking about how I want to be as a practitioner and really buying into the whole, it really does take a village. I don't want to have the sole responsibility for helping someone heal. I don't want to carry all of that. I want help. And I think it's going to be uh, especially in you know w 
the mental health realm that we're trying to focus on, we have to really check ourselves and make sure that we don't get into this almost, I don't know, for lack of a better phrase, God complex of, oh, you're getting better. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing all of this for you. And making sure that that person is talking to other people, not just us, so that they're getting different perspectives from different people. And like you said, Sean, you know, where one day I might be giving you the juror, the next day you might be giving the fire, the enthusiasm, you know, and I think people need different people with different perspectives to bring those things, and um, I'm glad that we have a, a, a really nice mix of uh, the elements, I think, within us, so that I can even refer uh, within this circle, but um, it's going to be important for us to have a good network of people that we keep our patients in touch with. Yeah, definitely an integrative approach is the goal. We're not saying acupuncture is going to do everything for you. It's a matter of you doing the work, wanting it, really wanting to make your life better and working with others, counselors, Western practitioners so we get a real holistic approach so we can heal everything because uh, it's not just the, the, the branch is really the addiction and there's like a different route like why do you feel the need to cover up your life with substances or even it's not just drugs that we're talking about drugs or alcohol it's it could be anything gambling shopping sex you name it chocolate like food uh we could it's it's all encompassing yeah brings down you know at the end of it if you want to go really deep into it it's it's social but at the end of it it's also existential the kidney being the energy that you know when we talk about what is your purpose why are you here it's it's that type of energy um so the when we talk about addiction usually aa comes up and aa began with a 12th step program and in some way there was a lot of jungian influence and the big thing about it is that it was strongly a spiritual thing so Jung says that the reason why there is addiction is that at the end of the day, it is an existential crisis that the, that the addict is undergoing, that he is somehow feeling a lack of wholeness in himself. So the, the formula for treating alcohol addiction is, uh, Jung says, was spiritus contra spiritum. So by that he was playing on word, that the word spiritus meaning both alcohol and spirit that in order for the patient to quit the alcohol, he has to have an experiential, uh, a spiritual moment in which he understands his purpose. Your aha Your, your aha. Oprah aha. Oprah aha moment. Oprah <laughs> aha moment. <laughs> <laughs> so he needs to find a, a, a wholeness within himself, and that's what he's seeking within the alcohol. So, if so that's a bit deep, but I think um, that is a journey that, that Every patient will have to take for themselves. We're here to assist, but we can't can't go on the journey for the patient. Yeah. Acupuncture really is a spiritual experience for me, though. I feel like, um, well, I've had some addiction uh, qualities in the past. Um, I've been to meetings, and what Sean was saying about the community—that's a really good 
community for everyone to get together because it's very non-judgmental. Um, but I kind of just lost my track of thought. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. On Huang's point about the whole existential aspect, I think even though it might be a little bit deeper philosophical but it really is the essence of stuff and to get rid of the stigma and to dig in there with someone and to pull them out from whatever depths that they're at or in the experience that they have because we never know what's going on you have to you have to go into someone's um, depths because that's a lot of what occurs and especially with the comorbidities of addiction and mental health the world inside of anyone's brains, and we can all attest to that, is so unique and sometimes could be your best friend or your worst enemy. And another video that I was watching was a TED Talk of this lady who was, um, had schizophrenia, and she was talking about even destigmatizing voices and the aspect of like how to change the experience of these voices, what that they weren't necessarily... Um, enemies or people that were trying to change her life but more so really just advocate for her because back to your point about uh, suffering that's where a lot of issues all arise from and she altered her relationship with these where then she spoke to them and it's like I got this no we don't need to worry about this I'm okay and gradually through treatment and various other modalities um those voices changed, lessened, became less um, erratic or extreme in nature. And I would love to hear kind of everyone's input because, you know, to my knowledge, there's no written uh, parallel between a lot of these different conditions that go along with uh, mental health and addiction. But with the with something like voices, do we think that's kind of like a hun thing and coming and going or is that more like a Poe thing and the fact that it's some sort of like sensorum aspect oh. <laughs> no, that's a good question I, I was just trying to kind of ponder it while you were forming it and I was thinking about how in that same psychotherapy class that you mentioned one of the big takeaways I got and that I don't know, maybe it's not cool that I do it, but I'll, I'll, I'll admit to it anyway. One of the takeaways I got was that a lot of times the voices that people are hearing are telling them they're stupid, they're stupid, they're stupid. And I try and listen without being intrusive. I have plenty of people to listen to downtown, uh, what they're talking about and what they say. And I remember thinking after finishing that class that if I was close to one I would just try and say you're not stupid and see if I got any kind of response and I've done that a few times and they do get quiet for a minute you know um, it's kind of eerie how it happens but just like the other day I was waiting for the bus and somebody was talking to herself and she dropped a matchbook and she started getting really angry about something else and I just said you dropped your matchbook to try and snap her and it kind of startled her a little 
and she looked down at the matchbook, but she didn't pick it up. And I didn't have an opportunity to pick it up and give it to her. Like I was trying to figure out how can I break through whatever's tormenting you to show you some compassion at this moment or to bring you back to what's going on around you and not what's going on in your head. Um, and, it, you know, I'm not trying to like experiment on people or anything. It's just trying to understand a little bit more uh, what's actually happening to that person and is there a way to connect to them without freaking them out even more um, because I think it's important to try to f to try to see a TCM pattern happening in front of me that makes sense to me so that I can see if I can expand what I want to do to include that type of patient that seems so like almost unapproachable. Mm -hmm. um, but the voices thing, uh, there was some other video or something that was assigned in that class that I watched and it was amazing how every single person was being told that they were stupid. And I can't, I can just Im kind of imagine, of course not to their level, if somebody's telling me that inside my own head and I think it's me all the time, how how devastatingly <laughs> difficult that must be to just exist. And I already think it's difficult to <laughs> exist. <laughs> Without the extra baggage. <laughs> um, I think that the, um, the amazing thing about our medicine is that we have so many different modalities, right? So sometimes patients come in in a state that they cannot be reached. Like even a, a typical patient who's, um, who's abusing substance comes in, I w like I was saying, they're so jittery, they can't even sit down for, a, for like a, s a minute just to do a meditation. But we don't have to talk them I through it. We just put our needle at yin tang between the eyebrows. They're calm down. Yeah. So th it gives us so many different ways, so many different languages to speak to the patient that we don't need to explain deep philosophy, which even though our f medicine is deeply you know, philosophical, we don't, have to need, we don't need the patient to understand the philosophy. We are able to help them through that stage that they're in. Um, Those who know the Tao don't speak of the Tao. Don't, don't speak <laughs> of the Tao. <laughs> you don't need to talk. You don't need to talk <laughs> about the Tao. Drop the mic, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice to talk about. <laughs> That's yeah. why we go to school. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, and, and because we have these modalities and we, uh, because we have these theories, we're able to see patterns where other people can see like you know, confusion and whatnot. So personally, for me, I prescribe more to the I Ching principle, so yin and yang, go back to the basics of yin and yang. From there, you can, uh, you know, so many people have tackled this I Ching. So Jung himself was spending years doing I Ching, mm -hmm. but the point that, to the point that he was so good at the I Ching that he would know the, the gua he would get before he even did it. Wow. So that, that he was, he says that this is, you know, the, the treasure of the East. Before this, there was mythology. And that is the sea of, the, of our collective unconscious. It cannot be reached by the mental mind. But through the I Ching, you can have order and, un, and reach that state of, uh, you know, of that collective unconscious. Um, Jung was also an astrologer, by the way. And it, it was his daughter who actually drew up the chart for all his patients. So <laughs> That's Without cool. going too deep, Wang, might you explain for those of that have never heard of the I Ching just a little bit about it? Oh. <laughs> 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 what? <laughs> <laughs> <A> what? 
So the the I Ching is is a one of the five classics of Confucianism. It's an old uh, um, text, probably uh, arguably one of the first texts within Chinese civilization. It's uh, a system of divination based on a binary uh, yes and no, so yin and yang, uh, and it's a system built up of these binary uh, approach to s to understanding phenomena. And later, uh, Leibniz, for example, developed into it into the binary system that now run our technical world. So zero and one. So um, there's a lot of things that are developed from it. It's a it's a framework from which we can build, we can put in theories. So it, it gives us a structure of to understand reality. Aren't we lucky to have our own personal internet in I Master Hong? It's like you don't have to ask Siri, you can ask Hong. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> ask Siri. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I just go back to the yin and yang, and it, it tells us so much. So Jung himself develops uh, theories of personalities that are you know, further refined. And from that, we can understand the interpersonal dynamics, the structural analysis of a person. So what is their predominant sensual modality? Are, are they intuitive thinkers as their primary? Are they sensing? Are they thinking? Are they feeling types? And how all that plays out within their internal structure. But from there, because of their natural lineup, of their natural um, um, structural lineup of how they think about things, they have a certain structure that they develop that 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 uh, propensities like like criteria that that, that um, define their personality, for example. But then there's also dynamics of in, of interpersonal relationship and how those things may exaggerate what is naturally within them, and um, and if it's a, it's a, a like a rough enough experience, like if they just get they live with parents who are naturally critical of them it can develop into states of neuroses. So people you were talking about with voices in their head, technically it's a, we, we call it a, a, um, a first third loop, it's, a, it's technical terminology, which means they're stuck in an inner critic voice. They're hearing voices that are actually recording of parental figures that are telling them that they're not good and bad. And it's so typical, you see it all the time. It's a very typical, for the most part, a lot of us get through childhood with a lot of traumas, <laughs> many of us do not escape the traumatizing experience of, of childhood. And that's no, through no fault of our own. It's just the way the cards were dealt. You got certain parents and that's the way they are. And you're the way you are. But it's not a, a, like a nice relationship. And so you end up with a very developed super ego, which means you have a very critical parent inside your head all the time telling you things. So, but because we see it that way, we don't, you know, we don't think of it as something scary. It's just like, you know, and especially within our TCM, we just say, okay, Let's move that chi a bit. There's a phlegm stuck there from that trauma. Transform the phlegm. You're good to go. <laughs> and the patient doesn't have to know about any of that. Right. We don't have to tell them any theory because our medicine is physical compassion. It's through the needle, through the herb. We can fix your problem without needing <laughs> to sit down and <laughs> psychoanalyze you. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave that for the therapist. Yep, for sure. I think the other portion that we haven't really mentioned here is relapse and recovery and just kind of the aftermath of any sort of addictive life experience. And I, I also want to preach to everybody about just the fact that a lot of the systems that are in place or any sort of the um, resources that might be out there right now, of course, 
you can always go see a therapist you can always go see a counselor at these groups that are there for not only the people that have been addicted but those that are supporting people with addictions never forget to touch back to those but with Chinese medicine in particular we can still be treating the root or almost and I don't even think scar is the right word it's more of just kind of how we speak about people's constitution or their propensity to something that you don't have to end treatment and there can be a preventative and almost um, getting over or overcoming and learning that lesson from whatever trauma and addiction and recovery that you experienced and with certain herbal formulas they can always be there as a backbone for you where because i know for a lot of people and um, that are close to me it's kind of like the worrying about will i go back will this ever be a part of my life again um the guilt and the shame that surrounds it and the weight that they put upon themselves because let's not be um blind to the fact that a lot of these people with addictions also realize the toll that it plays upon others and it doesn't help when they not only have to brunt their own circumstances but they have to take upon the reactions of all those around them and that's another reason why people then from certain traumas may even suicide because they feel like it's better to take themselves out of the situation when really we got to reintegrate and push people back to connection the c word again <laughs> that's what i think this theme and this talk is all about connection and compassion for sure i was uh, telling you guys earlier that um, this is kind of flip side of the coin um i think maybe a couple weeks ago i saw a patient um, who gets acupuncture every day if she's not at our clinic she's at a, another one and uh, again kind of being the rebel who's always like okay are we really doing this person a service or am i enabling something here i pushed the envelope and asked if uh, the patient thought they might be addicted to acupuncture and thought i was going to get hit i really did like there was shock and despair and just um, disbelief that I could even ask such a question and a lot of defensiveness even after I left the room and came back in to the point where I had to be like, oh, we're still on that. I thought we were going to treat you now. Um, and this patient had uh, alcoholic parents, so I was able to say, so you understand that, you know, addictive patterns and uh, the patient really didn't want to believe that it was such a thing but I was I was fortunate also to be have an observer in the room at the time too that I could turn to and say it's a thing right back me up um, and I, I wonder what you guys think about that for like you know long-term patients who come for a specific disease process and want the same thing over and over again from us but never really report any kind of improvement. I definitely think there are worse things to be addicted to. <laughs> um, just like some people might like to exercise too much. I feel like 
it really depends on what is going on inside of her. If it's like a fear based, she's scared that if she doesn't get acupuncture every day, something bad is going to happen. Uh, maybe she should do it less often and so she could really boost up herself. Um, but if it's not really harming her or anyone around her, um, I don't know. It's like a personal journey. If she's like struggling, if she doesn't want to do it anymore. And a lot of it is like just being aware, being aware of what's going on inside of yourself. Um, I don't know. That's my opinion about that. I think the challenge or the poignancy of your comment is really the key there because really to Jess's point, there's much worse addictions. But I think with anything that becomes repetitive or routine, there has to be a deeper examination of it. And that almost shock that you provided her, you know, who knows, maybe it won't change things tomorrow or in a week or in a month but there has to be some reconsideration to maybe delve deeper into that fear that you mentioned Jess or whatever other circumstantial thing that could be going on in this person's life because there's a reason that they are coming here whether it's to find that connection again to someone that provides something to them that may they don't get in their own routine day-to-day life or there are certain expectations that they place upon themselves in regards to, um, we, and we don't need to go so in detail about this patient, but you spoke about some of the conditions that she was working on. So what are the relationships that she has to those conditions? And dissecting and going deeper into those because I remember when we had this conversation, I posed the question like, well, for her, where might she be in regards to believing that our medicine works? And with any sort of medical or medicinal um, proponent, there is the placebo effect. There is the mind over matter, and that's where we have to meet them where they're at. So is this, are we servicing this person the best? Has they, have they fallen so much into an alignment of this is just all I can do when really there needs to be a lot of other changes? Um, and circling back to our point about empowering the patient, what sort of steps haven't been taken on her end or by the practitioners and to point those possibilities out to her? Because I think a lot of people don't understand that they don't need to necessarily come every day to see us, that they can, you know, do a little bit of their qigong or get out into nature and see the five colors or have the five tastes or experience all the other correspondences that we've gotten to know so well um but i definitely think there can be i wouldn't call it bad but in an enabling within our profession because yeah people want to accept payment and people want to have full lists and um schedules for people to come in but how do you sit with yourself? And I think that's the reason why you challenged Aditi is you're not someone that's just going to sit there and be like, okay, here's a stack of, you, you mentioned two files, three files, 
I'm sure they're, I mean, the file that I was working from, I'm sure, is not the first. Yeah, it does. It sounds excessive every day. It d depending on your condition, like not a protocol might be every day. If you're not dealing with something like that, then maybe somebody told her once that you need to get acupuncture every day and she believes it. I don't know enough about this person to to make a judgment like if she should or should not or if it's a problem for her. Um, but if you felt the need to say that, I I think there's probably something there. Yeah, I definitely felt like an enabler. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. Uh, so I think we talked about this before, and, and I think maybe it's part of her journey just to have to see you. Yeah. You're the person to kick her and make her make that move that she's been needing to make. Uh, so uh, for sure, acupuncture has been studied, and it activates parts of the brain that are equivalent to maybe no, very light drugs. Yeah, <laughs> very endorphins. endorphins. So that's why it's so good, you know, especially with uh, people undergoing like uh, detoxing. Acupuncture is perfect because it titrates you away from your addiction. But in in Chinese medicine, we say that uh, it's arguable. Some 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 of the physicians have said that plants do not have the complexity of of spirit and soul that human beings have, and so therefore they cannot use plant alone and trust that will change the 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 nature or the they call it the qing qing which means the essence and nature of the patient that comes with you being the doctor the physician and that's why within our field during the song dynasty there was the 13th specialty which is called the chu yol specialty that was a, a field of psychotherapy where you know physicians would uh, would help the patient make a transition, like a mental change, uh, uh, an aha moment, a spiritual change. And they use a number of different modalities, from you know incantations to uh, to talismans and all that. It's a lot of details. Not not go into that, but yeah, I think if if needles alone and herbs alone was enough, you know, we can automate it, like have a machine do that for the patients. But you're there because you have that human connection with the patient. And I think it's our responsibility to help the patient make that change. So seeing the patient again and again and again, I think we don't want to be enablers. We want to help the patient become self-empowered, you know, to find why they're here and what they need to do, you know? Yeah. It's such a thin line between meeting them where they're at and that enabling, I think, sometimes. And uh, I look forward to that struggle as I move on try and figure out this whole thing of helping people out and think it's a lot of subtlety right where no one's there and we're all perfecting our craft and that sort of ability to hold space but it just took me back to a moment a few weekends ago when i was doing the infinity seminar and one of our professors ed was talking about a story where he purposely got angry at this person and, you know, we don't really think about that as something that a practitioner does. Um, but this person was hoarding. And so he was equivalating that to someone being stuck in the mud, in the earth element, that it was just stagnant. And he utilized the anger towards this person to move that energy. And so that's another way where we can start to understand our medicine and and 
you know, same goes that people a lot of times don't always want to place fear on their patients. But if, you know, they're uninspired and their fire energy is just dim, but you say, this is really going to happen to you. This is a fact. This can occur. You need to change this. Watch out for that. And all of a sudden now the shen lights up. And who knows, maybe they never come back and they don't talk to you again, but then they realize a couple years down the line, like, dang, that one person with one statement, you know, the power of storytelling, as Ed would put it, changed their pathway. And I think the one thing with prescriptions, whether we're talking about mental health as a whole field or this specific locale of addiction, this day and age, there's so many people out there. And I think we need to also free ourselves from not living in a scarcity mindset that, okay, we say the wrong thing or we try to provide what we know we can offer and it's going to have to set that patient off in a certain way that someone else will come through the door or maybe they'll come around later down the line. So, uh, not to toot my own horns, but it's possible to get rid of patients. <laughs> 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 so I've done it uh, quite a few times. So we had patients who had really thick files, and they come in for the same thing. It's like a man with Meniere's disease. He keep coming in. He wasn't making any making any lead way. You can't. It's hard to fix Meniere's. It's like it's a ringing in my ear. I don't know. It's just, is it loud? No, not too loud. Just kind of ringing a little bit. Uh, I did get rid of him. Apparently, I, it was a case study for Dr. Cohen's case study class. And so when he, when he, when I described my case study, he says ex machina. So then his son uh, Jake says, "No, it's Deus ex machina," because it just ex it, the, the events that took place during my treatment of him or was so interesting that he just like stopped cold coming to clinic. I didn't know what happened to him. Uh, the last thing I heard, well, uh, maybe I shouldn't share all that too much detail, but I did meet him again a few months later. Just happened to run into him and say, why you have been coming to clinic? He says, I've been feeling good. I didn't need to come in anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, it's possible to move that chi enough that the patient doesn't need you to be there, to be a crutch for them. Yeah. Yeah. Any last comments, words? I think this was a great conversation and shed light on another field that we're able to treat with our medicine and specifically herbally can be a great alternative to uh, what's out there because people need something to rely upon in some sense and that herbal formula can be your best friend yeah i think especially with addiction to chemicals um a lot of the drugs that people abuse in our medicine are things that numbs you. They call it mamu, which means numbing. It stops the chi from moving. It actually causes stagnation. Yeah. And in our medicine, everything we do is like move the chi, move the chi, move the chi. So we're doing the perfect thing that is necessary to get to get you off that addiction, because <laughs> we're the movers and you're stuck, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If anyone's out there feels stuck, feels like you don't know what to do. We're here for you, um, and yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed listening. If you can't find us, find another TCM practitioner, because we're all over the place, ready to help and show compassion and connection. Here, here. Thanks, Thanks for, for tuning in. in. Until, Until next time, salute. salute.